Well, if we haven't met yet, my name is Jesse Randolph. I'm the pastor teacher of Indian Hills Community Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, I've been in the role for about a year now. I took over for a man named Gil Rue, who was in the pulpit for 52 years. So he showed up in September of 69 as Woodstock was winding down and uh, retired in July of 22, and I've been at it for the last year and, and praising God for it. Um, we moved from Southern California, so I've gone from being a, someone from the Golden State to somebody who now lives in the good life. Um, yeah, that's right. Good. And we've absolutely loved it. We've loved the church, we've loved the community, and we've loved life in the Midwest. In fact, I've already learned quite a bit about life in the Midwest in the last year. I've learned that Soda, apparently, is not soda. It's pop. Um, See? There's a few amens on that. Um, I've learned how easy people will make it sound to drive four hours or six hours or eight hours. Like, it's only five hours to Minneapolis or seven hours to Denver. Or, you know, it's only ten hours down to Dallas. That's completely foreign to Southern California. We just like to park in the same place for two hours on the same freeway. Um, But one of the places I've made several trips to uh, in the past year is Kansas City. That's kind of our our biggest close town, you know, to us. You know, Kansas City is known for a lot of things, Super Bowl winning teams like the Chiefs, uh, Kansas City Royals who don't win very much, and then, of course, delicious barbecue. But what they're also known for a lot these days out in evangelicalism is it's home of the, uh, I think, one of the nation's, nation's fastest growing and most prominent seminaries which is Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm going to run a ton of slides, by the way, today. I'm going to go as fast as I possibly can. Try to, I, I recognize the only thing standing between you and lunch is this presentation. So I'll go as quickly as I can and, and move through these slides. And I will tell you on the front end, I'm going to put a lot of bad theology up here, so I'm not expecting that you're scribbling down furiously every single quote that I throw up here. It's more to give you context for what we'll be talking about today. So anyway, Midwestern is one of the nation's fastest growing and more prominent seminaries today, and it's thriving under the leadership of its president, a man named Jason K. Allen. Uh, It's attracted, this seminary has many prominent scholars uh, from all over the world. It's training top-rate theological minds uh, for the academy and for the church. It's created all kinds of spin-off ministries like For the Church and Spurgeon College, and this new one called the Center for Classical Theology. And this Center for Classical Theology, housed at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, is led by this man, Matthew Barrett. Dr. Barrett, like me, is a Californian-turned-Midwesterner. But unlike me, Dr. Barrett has experienced a meteoric rise in theological circles. He's a prolific author, he's a writer, he's a speaker, and he has an uncanny ability to take high-level theological topics and bring them down to the common, you know, to the, the bottom shelf for the common man. He did so in his works on your left there, None Greater and Simply Trinity, treating the attributes of God and the, and the triune nature of God. And he's also swung the big stick uh, with some, some academic heavyweights in the two books on your right there, which is The Doctrine on Which the Church Stands or Falls, which is the, the Doctrine of Justification. And his latest book, it's only about three weeks old now, called The Reformation as Renewal. Uh, Dr. Barrett is a gifted and influential man. And I'm taking this time to introduce Dr. Barrett to you because he is really representing the tip of the spear of this, mo- this movement out there today called uh, theological retrieval, the whole concept of theological retrieval, which is being pushed and promoted especially through the Center for Classical Theology there at MBTS. 
Here's the mission statement, and I'm, I can't see those slides. I can't tell if you can read those or not. Maybe there's a way we can make these available later. Um, but here's the mission statement of the Center for Classical Theology. The Center for Classical Theology exists to contemplate God and all things in relation to God by listening with humility to his word with the wisdom of the great tradition. Okay? Uh, contemplate God and all things in relation to God. Yes, amen, I'm all for that. That sounds like a pretty straightforward theological statement or even a, a definition of what it means to study theology itself, even if that word contemplate might sound a little bit mystical. But note how this contemplation is supposed to take place according to the Center for Classical Theology. It's in the last part of the quote there. By listening with humility to his word with the wisdom of the great tradition. So friends, did you know that, that when you woke up this morning and you had your coffee and you looked out over the Ohio River and you cracked open your Bible to do your devotions, that you were supposed to be doing so with the wisdom of the great tradition? Um, did you know as you were headed to church this past Sunday that you were supposed to not only prepare your heart to hear the word, but you were supposed to do so in accompaniment with the great tradition? Pastor, did you know that as you were preparing your sermon last week or in preparation for last Sunday's sermon, that you were supposed to be not only preaching and, and diving into the word, but, but listening with humility to the wisdom of the great tradition. Well, according to the center of classical theology, you and I and all of us, we are completely missing the boat, if that doesn't describe you, because you have not been listening with humility to the wisdom of the great tradition. Now, I'm sure we haven't known each other that long just yet, but you're picking up on a little bit of sarcasm coming from me. Um, and that's because I am quite confident that there have been many pastors and seminary professors and deacons and churchmen and Christian housewives, and to borrow from William Tyndale's old line, plowboys, who have had and enjoyed in and delighted in a very clear picture of who the God of the Bible is through the dog-eared pages of their Bible, though they had never any exposure to this, this so-called great tradition, and, and would have not the faintest idea of what Matthew Barrett and the Center for Classical Theology is saying they're retrieving. So, what is this great tradition that we're all supposed to be familiar with and, and retrieving and, and pursuing? I mean, those words, the great tradition, on their face, they sound very appealing at first glance. We wouldn't want to be left behind from, from the great tradition, right? It's great after all. Well, Rather than try to sort of clumsily piece together a definition of the great tradition myself, I'm going to let one of the strongest proponents of this movement, his name is Craig Carter, he's a theology professor at the University of Toronto, give his definition. And this is going to be a very long quote. It's going to take me like 10 slides to read the whole quote. Don't take notes on this because this is um, not something you want to take home with you. Here we go. The goal of the Great Tradition Retrieval Project is to restore a balance between what can be known by human reason and what can only be known by divine revelation. The work of Etienne Gilson is of crucial importance here because he led the recovery of the historical Thomas from the distortions of the neo-Thomism of the modern period. For Thomas, that's Aquinas by the way, philosophy has a role in the articulation and defense of sacred doctrine, but it is a ministerial role, not a magisterial one. He integrated certain aspects, elements, of Aristotle's teaching into Christian theology, modified other elements radically, such as Aristotle's view of the nature of God, and rejected other elements contradictory to biblical revelation, such as Aristotle's view that the world is eternal. 
Thomas's method was similar to that of patristic writers such as Athanasius, the Cappadocian Fathers, and Augustine, all of whom critically appropriated elements of Neoplatonism into their thought where appropriate. Tracking with me so far? I gotta take a breath. It's a long quote. When the writings of Aristotle became widely known in the West in the 13th century, they were perceived as a secularizing threat to orthodox doctrine. Thomas critically appropriated them in the service of his work in restating the Nicene doctrine of God. But Thomas was first and foremost an Augustinian, and so he integrated Aristotle into the Christian Platonist framework, which had been developed by the church fathers, mediated to the medieval period through Augustine, and has become traditional by the high Middle Ages. Both Augustine and Thomas exhibited a horror of rejecting any sort of scientific truth in the name of Christianity, lest the name of Christ be sullied. For them, truth is a unity, and all truth is God's truth. Therefore, reason and faith cannot ultimately be in conflict. Pope John Paul the Great's 1998 encyclical, Fides et Ratio, was an attempt to restate the great tradition's understanding of wisdom. It characterizes the relationship between faith and reason as follows. Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. For Augustine, Anselm, Bonaventure, and Thomas, faith and reason need each other. This conviction is central to the great tradition, including the Reformed Orthodox, Richard Muller, that is, the post-Reformation Protestant scholastics, Lutheran as well as Reformed, who composed the Protestant confessions that define Protestantism. To see faith and reason as being in harmony, however, does not mean that there is no room for mystery in the Christian faith. Philosophical distinctions between words used to describe different aspects of God's being are crucial for preserving sound doctrine. The goal in in using philosophy is not to eradicate mystery, but to state it carefully in a non-contradictory manner. You guys ready for your quiz and what he just said? I mean, that is quite the mouthful, isn't that? Uh, Did you catch all those terms? Did you catch how much you're missing out on by not embracing the great tradition? Reason, philosophy, Aristotle, Neoplatonism, Thomism, Neo-Thomism, Augustine, Anselm, Bonaventure, Pope John Paul, Scholasticism, Reformed Orthodoxy. See, the contention of those who were contending for this retrieval of the great tradition, men like Craig Carter, men like Matthew Barrett, is that the the reformers themselves, men like Calvin and and Luther and Zwingli, were themselves steeped in this uh, great tradition as they define it. And that the whole argument is as we look to them, as we look to stand on their shoulders as these great reformers and consistent with our own reformational lineage, we need to walk as they walk and and read as they read and, and learn as they learned and read the scriptures philosophically, scholastically, Thomistically. Here's Craig Carter again. This is a shorter quote, don't worry. He says, We need to listen, learn, and humbly seek to rise to their level, he's speaking of the reformers, of theological and philosophical sophistication in our interpretation of Scripture and our dogmatic formulations. This is the goal of the Great Tradition Retrieval Project. So, again, I want to pause here and let you know, I, I see that I'm throwing around a lot of terms and concepts and very quickly, but I want you to make sure you're understanding the main point that's being asserted here by those seeking to retrieve what they call the great tradition. They're saying, as Christians, 
as we come to the Word of God and as we study and teach and proclaim the Word of God, as we incorporate the Word of God into our our lives and our practices and our families and our churches, we need to make sure that we're accompanying the Word of God with a sea of of Reformational and pre-Reformational and medieval and patristic theologians, and not only that, but Roman Catholic theologians, and not only that, but various secular Greek philosophers and Greek philosophical constructs. And, And that coming to the scriptures in this way through this lens of the great tradition, that's the only way that we'll know how, they'll say, to contemplate God faithfully. So I've given today's talk, the the message, it's titled, What Does Athens Have to Do with the Church? That's what you saw on the screen when you walked in. And in doing so, I borrowed from a pretty infamous line from Tertullian of of Carthage, uh, a late second, early third century um, church father, lawyer turned Christian turned theologian, who once infamously asked this question, what indeed does Athens have to do or to do with Jerusalem? Now by Athens, Tertullian, writing centuries ago, was referring to the, the introduction of Greek philosophical thought and belief, and by Jerusalem, he was referring to the, the apostolic doctrine taught by Christ and the apostles. And Tertullian was essentially saying that Greek philosophy, in his context, ought have nothing to do with the development of Christian theology. In other words, Tertullian, who ironically would have been in this stream of great tradition that others are seeking now to appropriate, uh, rejected the whole notion of, of explaining how Christian theology develops through foreign philosophical ideas. Now, that does not mean, by the way, because he rejected Greek philosophy, that Tertullian was somehow anti-intellectual or that he was somehow intellectually stunted or, or underdeveloped. Far from it. This is the church father, by the way, who coined the phrase Trinity. He's called the father of Latin orthodoxy because he translated the, the scriptures into Latin, the, the, the language of the day, and coined this idea of the, the oneness of God and the threeness of God and came up with the term Trinitas, which we translate Trinity. So he was not at all a-theological or not interested in theology. Well, this question, what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem, I would contend, is not some quaint relic of the past. Rather, it has great relevance to us today in our church context. As we ask the question, in the face of those pushing for now what they call theological retrieval, what does philosophy, what does scholasticism have to do with sound doctrine? Uh, What does Aquinas or or Plato or Aristotle have to do with sound doctrine? What does Neoplatonism or Neotomism, to use their terms, have to do with sound doctrine? Or as we've titled the message, what does Athens have to do with the church? Now, I'm going to have a few points that I work through. I'm going to work through. I actually had a worksheet I brought with me. It made it from Nebraska to my stopover in Detroit yesterday. And then I think I left my worksheet in Detroit somewhere. So they're, hopefully they're tuning in and filling in these blanks from the Detroit airport. But um, these are just going to be some basic points if you're taking notes, just to sort of tee up the issue. There's no way I can be as comprehensive as I'd like to be when we're talking about philosophy and scholasticism and reformational, reformational theology. There's just simply too much to fit into 45 minutes. So our first heading for today is the immediacy of the issue. We'll have six of these headings if you are a note-taker, the immediacy of the issue. Here's what I mean by that. I mean that this issue of theological retrieval, it's a real movement, 
and it's a growing movement, and it's an influential movement, and it's an aggressive movement. And I don't want to be accused of exaggeration or or hyperbole, so I'm going to let those who, in in a second here, who have been most aggressive on this this point of theological retrieval uh, speak for themselves. We'll hear from them in their own words. Um, and, And before I get there, though, I do want to say there's no reason for me to contend that these men aren't believers, that they don't know Christ, they don't know the gospel. There will be those who say these men are are so off the rails that they couldn't possibly know the gospel and know Christ. I have no reason to say that, believe that, assert that, so I'm going to make that clear up front. But I am going to let their words speak for themselves. Now, here's some pertinent quotes from these in the theological retrieval movement. Here's first Matthew Barrett. He says, the grammatical historical method alone produces less than biblical results. The classical method, and that's my my note there, promoted by the theological retrieval camp, does not just pursue knowledge, but wisdom. It's participatory exegesis. So we're getting many different voices into what does this scripture mean, including my own voice, not what God has revealed once for all time. Uh, Here's another one. The reformers saw themselves in continuity, not only with the church fathers, but with key medieval scholastics. They were resolved to retrieve the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Of course, he's speaking to the universal church there. When he says Catholic, he's not talking Roman Catholic. A reformed tradition believed in biblical authority, but they were not biblicists like the radicals, the Anabaptists. Why? They were committed to reformed Catholicity. Uh, Right now, I'm revisiting Christology. It's a dangerous statement. And Aquinas raises questions as fascinating as they are profound, questions that evangelicals don't have on their radars. I can't help but wonder if the drift away from the orthodoxy of the creeds in the last two centuries could have been avoided if we read someone as orthodox as Aquinas. So this is a Baptist seminary, by the way, saying we need to start reading more Aquinas so that we can understand Christology. Aquinas, by the way, would be St. Thomas Aquinas to the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Here's another one. If we have any hope of leaving the darkness of the cave, then we need more Augustans today to guide us out of the shadows into the light of God's Son. That hope depends, however, on humility. The humility to consider whether God's revelation of himself to humanity in creation extends far and wide, even to the corridors of Athens. So again, some more of this terminology, just to summarize, we have words like reformed Catholicity, medieval scholastics, Aquinas, Athens. And again, we ask with Tertullian, what does Athens have to do with the church? Well, here's more from Craig Carter. Something interesting is now happening in the 21st century in Reformed and Evangelical circles that would have been difficult to predict 40 years ago. The post-Reformation scholastic theologians are being rediscovered. All of a sudden, a tradition dominated for a century by an ahistorical biblicism is reading von Maastricht and Perkins, Owens, and Turretin. Who saw that coming? A revival of scholastic realism is taking place today in front of our very eyes. And here's Peter Sammons from the Master's Seminary, my alma mater, saying the scholastic method is a contemplative and detailed way of reflecting on scripture. Scholasticism produces patience and humility as opposed to the rash claims of knowledge. Sadly, Years of intellectually inbred thinking. That's us, by the way. We're the intellectual inbreds, according to this camp. 
has led to stunted growth, and those today who won't read or think outside their own generation are doomed to perpetuate the cycle. If the integrity of the church is to be preserved, if even a hollow shell of reason is to remain, then the contemporary rejection of scholastic thinking must be torn up by its roots and cast to the wind. We must make ignorance of the past a thing of the past. Give me one man like Zanki or Turretin, wielding the scholastic method like a skilled surgeon over a hundred theologians holding to modern inbred scholarship. Bring back the scholastics. In other words, these are the men that I'm quoting now who are shaping men for ministry today. These are the men who are now lecturing in seminary classrooms and assigning books to read and assigning papers to write and now graduating men to serve not just the academy but the church and God's people. And they're doing so with this hyper-emphasis on this retrieval of what they're calling scholastic theology or medieval theology or, or Greek philosophy. Those are all real terms. And they blend them all together and call it the great tradition and tell all of us that we need this great tradition to rightly understand and handle and now teach the scriptures. All of this to say, mentioning modern-day seminary classrooms, this is not some you know, personal axe I'm grinding or some hobby horse I'm riding. This modern-day insistence on retrieval is already in the seminaries, and it's only a matter of time, if it hasn't happened already, that it starts trickling into the churches. Now, with any cause that a person tries to champion, you you need a foil. You need to have a target at which to shoot your arrows. You need to have some place to sling your stones. And for those who are arguing for for theological retrieval today, they, they have their foil. They have their target, and their target is us. It's you. It's me, the Bible thumpers, the biblicists. And that takes us to the second heading of the the talk this morning, uh, the boogeyman of biblicism. They don't like biblicists. So at one point, uh, theologians like uh, Charles Hodge were saying things like this. The duty of the Christian theologian is to ascertain, collect, and combine all the facts which God has revealed concerning himself and our relation to him. These facts are all in the Bible. Amen. Or here's more from Hodge. Christianity is a system of doctrines supernaturally revealed and now recorded in the Bible. Of that system, there can be no, I think that says no new development. No new doctrines can be added to those contained in the word of God. Every question, therefore, as to what is or what is not Christian doctrine is simply a question as to what the Bible teaches. Or J.I. Packer, this is in uh, Fundamentalism in the Word of God. The teaching of the written scriptures is the word which God spoke and speaks to his church and is finally authoritative for faith and life. To learn the mind of God, one must consult his written word, what scripture says, God says. And then here's Ryrie. Everyone has a basis of authority which becomes a base of operations for his thinking and doing. That basis of authority is complex for it is made up of several things and sometimes people are ignorant of the fact that they have such a thing as a basis of authority. But everyone without exception has one. A study of the Bible is the most important means by which a Christian can come to know this basis of authority which is the revelation of God. It's clear It's cut and dried. It's straightforward. They're from from all three of those theologians. But now what we have are those who are pushing for theological retrieval, not only disagreeing with statements like what what I just read, 
but, but openly ridiculing and mocking statements like that and derisively calling that approach biblicism. See, there are those in this theological retrieval camp who out in the blogosphere or the Twitter sphere, especially in our modern quick soundbite uh, generation, they have a, a penchant for calling those who have not embraced their methods, these theological retrieval methods, they'll accuse them of, of worshiping the Bible or, or bibliology, bibliolatry, or bowing down to the paper pope of Scripture. Here's again Matthew Barrett. He says, Biblicism moves beyond believing in the final authority of the Bible to imposing a restrictive hermeneutical method onto the Bible. Uh, Biblicism is a haughty disregard, chronological snobbery in the words of C.S. Lewis, for the history of interpretation. Biblicism limits itself to those beliefs explicitly laid down in Scripture. Biblicism conflates theology and economy as if who God is in himself can be read straight off the pages of Scripture. Biblicism neglects the divine author's intent and ability to transcend any one human author. Uh, that's rapid fire there, but, but some of what he says there is actually true. Some of us biblicists, to use his term, I'm okay with that term actually, um, we tend to base our beliefs about who God is based on what's revealed in the pages of Scripture. Amen? But the rest of what he said there is, is highly exaggerated. And it's highly exaggerated as a way to, to fit the theological method he's advancing, which is what he says is this need to go beyond the scriptures to Aristotle, to Plato, to Aquinas, and you name it. Uh, the accusations continue. Here's R. Scott Clark, who says of Biblicism, it's an attempt to read scripture in isolation from the rest of scripture. Uh, it's the attempt to interpret scripture as if no one has ever read it before. And then here's Patrick uh, Abendroth, who actually started his ministry at the church I now pastor, uh, who says it pretty openly right here. Biblicism is a bane. Who knew? So there are these faculty members at prominent seminaries. There are these prominent authors. There are these forward-thinking, they would say, leaders and influencers who are warning people and aggressively warning people about the dangers of what they call biblicism as they're now seeking to baptize people into the great tradition. And when shots like these are, are sent across the, the bow, swung by the big sticks in the, in the academy, and now in these more popular Christian circles, there might be a temptation, an initial temptation on our part, to cave, to, to feel the, the pressure and the weight of, wow, these are these guys seem like they've found something, and these guys are getting all the, the follows and the likes and the people coming to their, their seminaries and their churches. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe biblicism is not right. Maybe, you know, Grandpa Joe and Grandma Karen were, were knuckle-dragging biblicists who didn't know their Bibles like I thought they did. Maybe I do need to be steeped in the great tradition like Matthew Barrett says I need to be. Not so fast. We don't need to go getting a, a great tradition tattoo on our neck just yet. Uh, it's not time for that. In fact, we can go back to historically and see, again, more uh, statements from faithful theologians who would be right in line with where we'd be on this topic of the Bible's authority. B.B. Warfield. The prevalent habit of concession to the world's thinking is the mother of all heresy. Uh, John Frame. We'd have our disagreements with John Frame, but look what he says. Traditionalism is not a biblical virtue. 
and total alignment with a historical tradition leads to spiritual shipwreck. And here's my own hermeneutics professor at Masters, Brad Clausen, says the truthfulness of a theological assertion is measured not by its originality, profundity, simplicity, or transcendence, but by whether it is demonstrably normed by the language of God's word. Sounds a lot like what uh, Dr. Marsh said last night. Our, Our theology comes from the Bible, not the other way around. So what we've seen is that there are those in the theological retrieval camp who are attempting to use biblicism or biblicists as their foil, their, their fall guy, their, their boogeyman. So if biblicism, according to this theological retrieval crowd, is to be avoided, what is to be pursued in its place, according to them? Well, we've already kind of alluded to it. It's the great tradition. And that's our third heading, the trend of tradition. Now, as we've already seen, there's this loud movement out there pursuing great retrieval or theological retrieval of the great tradition. We have to go back in history a little bit, though, to see where did this come from? Is it, did, did this just pop out of the sky? Did it just show up on Twitter one day? Or does it have deeper roots? Um, the answer is the latter. There are, this has been developing over the years. And, and actually, this trend of tradition has soil in the science of hermeneutics or, or Bible interpretation. You know, for at least a couple of decades now, there's been this still relatively new field of theological interpretation of Scripture that's been advanced by men like Kevin Van Hooser and others. And, and I'm going to get to a quote in just a second, but they will do exactly the opposite of what Corey Marsh said last night. They will layer their theological presuppositions, and unapologetically so, over the Scripture, and then read the scripture through that lens. So we're, we're going to read, we're going to have a Trinitarian understanding of the Bible. Here's our understanding of the Trinity. We read the Bible through a Trinitarian lens. Or they'll have a Christological interpretation of scripture. This is our view of Christ and Christology. We read the Bible accordingly. That's where we get to Christocentric hermeneutics and all the rest. But here's David Starling on this method of theological interpretation He says, TIS is an approach to biblical interpretation that approaches the text with explicitly theological presuppositions, questions, and concerns, seeking to hear in Scripture not only the thoughts and voices of its various human authors, but a word from God that functions as the primary and authoritative source for their knowledge of him. He calls here then TIS an overtly theological interpretive stance. It's a legitimate and fruitful approach to biblical interpretation. This is, by the way, on the liberal side is where you get like a Latino view of the scriptures or an LGBTQ interpretation of the scriptures. It's this methodology taken to the extreme. You view it through your eyes rather through God's eyes. Contrast that method of interpretation with old school interpretation, biblicist interpretation, like here from Bernard Ram. He says the historic Protestant position is to ground theology, this is like Corey last night, in biblical exegesis. A theological system is to be built up exegetically brick by brick. Hence, the theology is no better than the exegesis that underlies it. The task of the systematic theologian is to commence with these bricks. I think it goes a little further. But only when he is sure of his individual bricks is he able to make the necessary generalizations and to carry on the synthetic and creative activity that is necessary for the construction of a theological system. So where Ram is and where we would be, as we heard last night, is we build our theology from the bottom up, brick by brick from Scripture. Scripture. 
where Van Hooser and the TIS, Theological Interpretation of Scripture crowd, which feeds into this great tradition, where they would be is, no, we actually start from the roof of the building and we peer down through our lens of whatever presuppositions we have and then we build our theology through our, our predetermined theological understanding. I bring this whole little rabbit trail up on theological interpretation of Scripture because this method of hermeneutics undergirds the whole great tradition that I'm talking about today. In fact, Matthew Barrett concedes that. He's writing a new systematic theology, which I think will come out in 2024, and he says this of his theology. My systematic theology will be characterized by serious attention to exegesis and biblical theology. While some systematics neglect hermeneutics, I will present a hermeneutic that listens to the best interpretive insights of a theological interpretation of Scripture. There it is. In contrast to Biblicism's ahistorical indifference, that's us, I will consider the superiority of pre-critical readings of sacred Scripture to help the Christian understand why his or her theology is distinctively Christian to begin with. Uh, Barrett is also linked with Gavin Ortland, who says, like the turn toward theological interpretation and biblical theology, the turn toward retrieval in systematic and historical theology lacks official boundaries and resists precise definition. It is better understood as a set of shared loyalties or instincts in theological method. An overall attitude guided by the conviction that pre-modern resources are not an obstacle in the age of progress, but a well in the age of thirst. So translating that, what Ortland here is saying is that, like Barrett, he is linking theological interpretation of scripture to the whole theological retrieval method that we're talking about today. But second, he's saying that we need to engage in theological retrieval as Christians in order to have healthy, thriving Christian lives and to have healthy, thriving Christian churches. In fact, the title of his book is Why We Need Our Past to Have a, a Future. So think about this. The Reformers, when they would use the term ad fontes, to the fount, they were referring to Scripture itself. We are going back to what the Scriptures teach. These great retrieval guys are saying ad fontes, and they're using it to say, we're going to go back to the reformers. They're calling the reformers themselves or the scholastic theologians or the pre-Reformation medieval theologians the fount, the source that we must go back to to get to the scripture. Well, ideas have consequences, and this is no less true of this modern-day fascination now with the idea of the great tradition and, and retrieval. Um, in 2016, in an article called uh, The End of Protest Protestantism, Pursuing Unity in a Fragmented Church, uh, Peter Lightheart said this, Protestantism has had a good run. And what he does then is he makes some argumentation similar to what we've seen earlier from Barrett and Carter. And he says he'd like to see us embrace a more lowercase c Catholic retrieval of various theological camps and views and um, centuries of, of various theological authors so that we can retrieve what he calls reformational Catholicity. Here's one of his quotes. He says, A Protestant's heroes are Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and their heirs. If he acknowledges any ancestry before the Reformation, they're proto-Protestants like Huss and Wycliffe. A reformational Catholic, that's what he's arguing for, as would Barrett and Carter, the history of the entire church as his history. 
And along with the reformers, he honors Augustine and Gregory and the Great and the Cappadocians, Alcuin and Rabinus Morris, Thomas and Bonaventure, Dominican, oh, Dominic and Francis and Dante, Ignatius and Teresa of Avila, Chesterton, De Lubac, and Congar as fathers, brothers, and sisters. So Lightheart is here saying, along with the theological retrieval camp of Carter and Barrett, that we don't need to stop at Luther and Calvin as we go back into church history. We don't need to stop at Wycliffe and Huss as we go back into church history. No, we need to go even deeper into the writings of the medievals and the scholastics and even the Roman Catholic Church, Aquinas and Bonaventure and Teresa of Avila, to, to deepen and broaden in our appreciation of the great tradition. Even though, of course, those Catholic theologians would have it dead wrong on certain doctrines, like soteriology, for instance, we still go there to see what, what good we can glean. Well, this drift in the direction of traditional recovery, recovery of a tradition, is not limited to a tradition. As we get to our fourth heading here, there's also a modern-day fascination in this theological retrieval camp of going back to philosophical sources, secular philosophical sources. There's this vein of thinking within those who are bent on pursuing the great tradition that we need to not only read more dated theological works, like from the third and fourth century, but we also need to be saturating our minds with secular philosophy and, and concepts of, of Greek metaphysics as a way to rightly read and understand and then respond to the scriptures. And, and the argument, if I can sort of boil it down, basically goes like this. The Bible was birthed in a day in which Greek culture and, and language were, were prevalent and, and prominent, and Greek philosophy and metaphysics still reigned supreme. So we'd be wise not only to be conversant with Greek language, which we do in seminary, and, and Greek history, I have no argument up to that point, but also any preacher, student, or teacher of God's word, they would say, needs to go even further now, and that's to understand not just the Greek language and the history and the culture, but to actually get into Greek philosophy, like Arist Aristotelian logic and Platonic thought and Neoplatonic thought. And to not just be conversant and, and be able to define those terms, but to be committed to those terms as you approach the scriptures. So what they would say is if you, you truly want to be reformational, and these are all reformed guys, conceded that, if you want to be consistent with what's been revealed in the great tradition, you need to be committed to weaving together your understanding of Greek philosophy and philosophies as you come to understand the scripture. So you need a Greek philosophical grid through which to read the scripture if you want to truly understand the scripture. If you think I'm being hyperbolic, here's uh, Louis Marcos in his book. This is called, his book is titled From Plato to Christ, How Platonic Thought Shaped the Christian Faith. He says a healthy corrective dose of Plato can help us not only to preserve the purity of Christian doctrine, but to think properly about that doctrine. Here's Hans Borsma. I have a few quotes from him. He says, faith isn't meant to function without reason, and we shouldn't attempt to do theology without philosophy. Or we need a good dose of Plato for some of the key teachings of Scripture to become intelligible. Or the Bible cannot be interpreted without prior metaphysical commitments. We need Christian Platonism as an interpretive lens in order to uphold Scripture's teaching. And last one, to reduce the Christian faith to a strictly biblical Christianity. Let's call it pura scriptura. Shorn of the medical, metaphysical assumptions of Christian Platonism is 
self-defeating. So he uses that term derisively, pura scriptura. I kind of like that. I'm I'm committed to pura scriptura. I think we adopt that. It fits where we are as IFCA. Well, I bring in Borsma because you'll never believe who really likes his teaching. Matthew Barrett. Matthew Barrett, oh man, that's really small, isn't that? <laughs> These are a couple of his more recent tweets from his, uh, his philosophical the- theology PhD seminar at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he is having his students work through Borsma and Plato and various other um, secular Greek ancient philosophers, but modern philosophers who seek to meld together theology and secular philosophy. They're, they're taking entire seminars on this material. And there's another one here. It's concerning, it's troubling, and I think it's potentially dangerous. And I'm not alone in saying that, by the way, because there are many in in the Christian tradition who have pointed out that Greek philosophy, like Tertullian earlier, uh, can can lead us wayward. Here's Van Til, great uh, presuppositional apologist, says none of the great Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and none of the great modern philosophers like Descartes, Kant, or Kierkegaard and others have ever spoken of the God who is there. Or bring it closer to our camp, Schaefer says, only by the new birth can one see the kingdom of God. The cure for spiritual darkness is the light of the world. The gropings of natural men, and sometimes they are men of great mental powers, are varied and complex. However, they have formulated certain general lines of philosophy, and and these, like the false religions of the earth, bespeak the spiritual limitations of fallen man. And then here's Bernard Ram one more time. He says, of evangelical Christianity refers to that version of Christianity which places the priority of the word and act of God over the faith, response, and experiences of men. Concretely, this means the supremacy and authority of the word of God as a synonym for all the revelations of God, written and unwritten, over all human philosophies or religions. What this modern fascination with philosophy does in this theological retrieval camp, is reverse what Ram here is saying. So no matter how much those who are advocating for theological retrieval might say that scripture, um, that, that philosophy does not rule over scripture in their system, the reality is they're using, as their own language says, philosophy as a lens through which to view scripture. So what, what is being used to interpret what? It's philosophy being used as the, the, the microscope to understand scripture. Well, scripture itself, let's go back to the the real authority here, gives us clear directions and warnings about this very type of approach. And we have to remember in Galatians 4.4, when Paul mentions the fullness of time, well, that's all referring to the, the, the historical preparation for the coming of Christ, the first coming. Well, part of that fullness of time was that the world's philosophies had failed to provide answers to all the life's great questions. That was an aspect of it. Or recall Paul with the, the, the philosophers on Mars Hill in, in Acts 17, where we see that for their philosophers, as it does for today's philosophers, they, they, their philosophies leave a person searching and groping for more. Or recall that, as we see in Colossians 2.8 and the development of the Colossian heresy, that, that worldly philosophies and ways of thinking it will inevitably lead to heresy, if that's all that you're hanging on to. And we recall, finally, from 2 Corinthians 10.5, that we are to be destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. 
And instead, we're to take every thought captive, whether that's a sinful thought, a theological thought, or a, or a philosophical thought. They all must be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, before we leave this topic of, of philosophy and its perils, uh, it's important to note uh, that, that those who are advocating for theological retrieval, they make it sound as though they've got that stream of, of uh, theological method and philosophical thought. They've got the right one. They've, they've tapped into some sort of stream that nobody else has discovered, and it's consistent, and it's monolithic, and, and everybody's in agreement with them. The only problem is when you dig into those ancient resources that they themselves are saying they're retrieving, you'll find that this whole so-called great tradition is not as uniform and as monolithic as they lead you to believe. For instance, John Chrysostom, his old nickname was Golden Mouth. He, he lived in the fourth century. This, these are his words from the very time frame that the, great, the retrieval folks would want to go back to. He says, let us then have faith. And let us not entrust our own affairs altogether to reason. Why is it, may I ask, that the Greeks were able to discover nothing of God? Did they not know all the pagan wisdom? How is it then that they were unable to get the better of fishermen and tent makers and unlettered men? Was it not because the Greeks trusted everything to reason while the latter placed all their confidence in faith? That is why these prevailed, meaning the fishermen, over Plato and Pythagoras and, in a word, over all who were in error. Those familiar with astrology and mathematics and geometry and arithmetic, they surpassed all who had a thorough and complete education and became as far superior to them as true philosophers to those who are actually dull and witless by nature. Here's a modern theologian. Brad Clausen says, The great tradition is a very mixed bag. Those who propose retrieval without careful qualification directly undermine what the Reformation sought to recover. So both Chrysostom and Clausen are right that it's not as uniform that the great tradition as one would be led to believe. In fact, when you go to some of these sources, they're all, these guys are all about retrieving what the Reformation guys saw, the reformers. They'll, they'll say the reformers were committed to the great tradition, so we need to be committed to the great tradition. But then you go back to the reformers and they don't seem as traditional as the great tradition guys would tell you they are. Look at John Calvin. He says, we ought to seek our conviction in a higher place than human reasons, judgments, or conjectures. That is, in the secret testimony of the Spirit. The testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason, says Calvin. The only true faith is that which the Spirit of God seals in our hearts. So he's in Geneva. Over in Scotland, John Knox says, the word of God is plain in itself. And if there appear any obscurity in one place, the Holy Ghost, who is never contrary to himself, explains the same more clearly in other places so that there can remain no doubt. And then in Switzerland, Zwingli says, I eventually came to the point where led by the word and spirit of God, I saw the need to set aside all things and learn the doctrine of God direct from his own word. Then I began to ask God for light and the scriptures became far clearer to me, even though I read nothing else than if I had had studied many commentators and expositors, to which I would say, what a bunch of biblicists, Amen. right? All right, that brings us to our fifth heading, the sufficiency of scripture. So notwithstanding Barrett and Carter and notwithstanding uh, Borsma and Ortland, we, we simply need to recognize and affirm here 
what the scriptures themselves plainly teach, which is that the spiritual insights of unbelievers, whether those be the philosophical musings of Greek philosophers or, or, or the theological ramblings of those who hold to a false form of religion, are not going to be of ultimate value to the follower of Christ. As he or she, with a Bible in their lap and a pen in their hand, and most importantly, with the Holy Spirit living inside of them, comes to the scriptures. That's clearly affirmed in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritually appraised, he who is spiritual, appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. See, when you come to the scriptures as a believer, as a follower of Christ, you have something that Plato didn't have, or Aristotle didn't have, and that Thomas Aquinas didn't have. You have the Spirit of God living inside of you who's not only conforming you into the image of your Savior, but is illuminating for you the truth of his word. That's why Packer could say, the Holy Spirit who caused the word to be written has been given to the church to cause believers to recognize it for the divine word that it is and to enable them to interpret it rightly and understand its meaning. He who was its author, the Spirit, is also its witness and expositor. Christians must therefore seek to be helped and taught by the Spirit when they study Scripture and must regard all their understanding of it no less than the book itself as the gift of God. The Spirit must be acknowledged as the infallible interpreter of God's infallible word. The supreme judge in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. He says, The Bible, therefore, does not need to be supplemented and interpreted by tradition or revised and corrected by reason. Instead, it demands to sit in judgment on the dictates of both. For the words of men must be tried by the word of God. The humble pupil of Scripture will trust his textbook and not doubt its claims for itself. I love that quote from Packer. Trust your textbook. Now, there are going to be some of you who are hearing this, and you might be tempted to think or, or say, aren't you falling into that very trap that the great tradition guys say you're in? Um, aren't you, by saying that we don't need anything but the Scripture and the Spirit, showing yourself to be an anti-intellectual, biblicist, fundamentalist? Absolutely. Not anti-intellectual. I'm absolutely a biblicist. I'm absolutely happy to claim the title of biblical fundamentalist, but that charge of being anti-intellectual will not stick. And that that brings us to our sixth heading here, the significance of study. As it relates to our study of the scriptures and our, our understanding of the scriptures, our proclamation of the scriptures, we aren't the independent minded free-spirited, toss-all-caution-to-the-wind, lone ranger types that those who hold the great tradition would say that we biblicists are. We aren't free of any presuppositions. Not at all. That would be impossible. We admit that we all come to the scriptures with presuppositions. It's a matter of if we come with right ones or not. Biblicists have presuppositions too. But, but our presuppositions are not rooted in things like Platonism or a Thomistic metaphysic or Reformation scholasticism. Our presuppositions are rooted in the very truths revealed by God in his word itself, such as the presupposition that God is, that God exists, 
that God is a God of truth and God is a God who cannot lie and God is a God who has communicated his truth to his people through his word and that his word is inerrant and infallible and sufficient for all of life and practice. We come with those presuppositions. So let's start there with that admission that we as biblicists have presuppositions. Now, it's also important to note that despite the swipes taken at us, biblicists, by those who hold the great tradition, we are diligent students of the scripture. At least we ought to be. Uh, We don't cherry-pick Bible verses to build entire theological systems. We don't build theology off of simple proof texts. We don't unfairly quote the scriptures out of context. No, we labor, we toil, we, set, we sweat in the study, and we do so by interpreting and, and applying sound principles of biblical hermeneutics, a consistent, literal, grammatical, historical method of hermeneutics, so that we can, along with those faithful exegetes who came before us, come to a right understanding of the once and forever meaning of that text that's before us. And sometimes we'll hit a wall. That, that happens. Sometimes we'll get confused about the meaning of a passage. Sometimes we'll get stuck in the study, but we have resources at our disposal to study deeply and study broadly. First, as we just went over from 1 Corinthians 2.14, we have the Spirit of God. The same Spirit who breathed out his word is the same Spirit who's taken up residence in our hearts and is the same Spirit who illuminates and gives clarity to his word. Second, we have the Scripture itself which is the clearest source of cross-study and referencing to which we can appeal. Here's Ram again. He says, Scripture interprets Scripture. Where a passage of Scripture is obscure, it is to be understood or boxed in in light of the total teaching of the Scripture on the subject. The purpose of the motto is to show once again that the Protestant interpreter does not need to fall back upon the church at certain critical places in the interpretation of Scripture, for Scripture is complete in itself. So we can appeal to scripture as we seek to understand scripture. Third, we have our local pastor leaders, churches, our our local pastors, church leaders, elders, who have been charged, 2 Timothy 1.4, with guarding the treasure that's been entrusted to them, or or to uh, retain the standard of sound words, 2 Timothy 1.13, that's been entrusted to them. Uh, those elders, those pastors have, as Titus 1.9 says, been, been given the charge to give instruction in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So we have our pastors, our leaders to go to. Uh, fourth, we have fellowship with like-minded believers. Corey brought that out last night. We have, we have brothers and sisters in the Lord in our local church context who we can come alongside and they can come alongside us and say, help me understand what this means. How do you take this and help me understand why you came to the place that you did? We have the IFCA. We have our shared doctrinal statement where we can go to brothers in the Lord, sisters in the Lord here, and and, and get guidance in navigating those thorny topics in the scriptures. Uh, Fifth, we have trusted commentators and theologians who share a a consistency with us in terms of the method of hermeneutics with which they approach the scriptures. That Consistent, literal, grammatical, historical methods. So they're able to, as we would hope, keep us within those guardrails and keep us within bounds and give us a sense of assurance that we're on the right track. And then sixth, we have our own God-given reasoning abilities and, and intellects, which God has given us this ability to think logically and coherently and functionally as we take in biblical truth. But even then, 
and this is where we would separate from the people in the great tradition camp, our own human reasoning faculties, we would concede, must always come into conformity with what the word of God says and teaches for all time. Our thoughts and reasoning abilities never rule over the the word. The word rules over them. Packer, again, is helpful. He says, nor may reason be viewed as an independent authority for our knowledge of God's truth. Reason's part is to act as the servant of the written word. We may not look to reason to tell us whether scripture is right and what it says. Reason is not in any case competent to pass such a judgment. Instead, we must look to scripture to tell us whether reason is right in which it thinks on the subjects with which scripture deals. I'll mention one last one. Seventh, we can read other sources. We can read church history. We can read Greek philosophy. We can read Aquinas. We can read creeds and confessions. We can read deeply and widely from the very sources that Barrett and Carter say we need to read from in the great tradition. We can read those things. But note, and here's where the important distinction has to be made. We would say that our biblical exegesis, our understanding of the scripture, is not to be informed by our reading in those fields. We don't need Thomas Aquinas because we think that he's the lock that helps us turn to a right understanding of the word of God or the doctrine of God or the Trinity. We don't read Plato coming to Plato saying, I think I need Plato to help me understand my understanding, my my reading of the scriptures here. We respect two millennia of church history that's come before us, but we don't revere history or we don't, we don't raise history to such a place of prominence that that history and tradition come anywhere close to reigning over the timeless truths of scripture. Well, at the heart of many critiques of groups like ours, and I'm almost done, groups like, they'll call us, the biblicists, the, the fundamentalists, uh, one of the many critiques is that we are anti-intellectual, that we're so busy with our, our fights and our charts that we can't read the thick books and run with the big dogs. And that's not the case at all. Uh, The reality is we have many top-rate scholars within our fellowship, and we need many more. But consider this quote from Mark Knoll on that topic of the need for scholarship, sound theological scholarship. And by the way, he is not a fan of fundamentalists, but his point here holds. He says, scholarship is not the most important thing in the Christian life. It is self-evident for a religion to which not many are called from the wise by human standards, that a believer may live and die an exemplary existence without pursuing the questions of a scholar. But the intellectual life is still important. It is one of the arenas that God has made in which to live out our days. It is a legitimate sphere in which Christians may be active. It is one of the activities carried on in the body of Christ, all of whose members, as the Apostle Paul teaches, deserve respect. As such, and no more, the life of the mind deserves the kind of cultivation that evangelicals regularly bestow upon other business. If evangelicals acknowledge that it is appropriate as a Christian to be the best ball player or lawyer or bank executive or auto mechanic or operator of a janitorial service or owner of a retirement home or third grade teacher that God has made it possible for a person to be, why do evangelicals find it difficult to believe that it is also appropriate as a Christian to cultivate the life of the mind as thoroughly as it can be cultivated. Indeed, he's saying, and he's right in saying, that as Christians, we ought always to be cultivating the life of the mind. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to bring 
Athens into that process as we do so. It doesn't mean that we need to be steeped in the great tradition as we do so. And as I close here, I'm going to give the final quote here to John Wesley, who says, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach the way. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, a man of one book. Let us all be men and women of that one book. Amen?